Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we will finish book six of The Dark Tower, Song of Susanna, the coda, and our wrap-up. Let's start the show! This book concludes on a cliffhanger and then wraps up with a coda subtitled Pages from a Writer's Journal. This is a fictionalized version of Stephen King's life from shortly after his meeting with Roland and Eddie to his death after being hit by a car. The real King provides a short word slinger's note, and now we have finished the penultimate book of the series. One to go, Jay. That's right. Just book seven is left. But we still have a few pages to deal with in Song of Susanna. And primarily it's made up of this coda and writer's notebook. And last episode we talked about when the fictionalized Stephen King shows up at a, as a character. I, I sort of wondered, you know, what's true, what's real, what's made up? You know, he drops names about who is babysitting his son and where they're living at the time and what the house looked like. And we ultimately, I think, determined that while that's somewhat of interest, it really didn't have a huge impact on the story. Um, Mm -hmm. We get to this end of this book and we get this fairly significant amount of pages of a Coda writer's notebook that I found fascinating. I know we talked about how we didn't like, or at least I didn't like how King sort of explicated his book within the book when he was a character in the last uh, chapters of the novel. But I really dug this writer's notebook probably because it felt like the intros and outros and, and notes that he puts in front of his short stories and other books about how he writes it. Now, on the other hand, we don't know how much of this is true because he obviously is looking at it after the fact. But um, for me, I really sort of dug these last 20 pages or so. Hmm. I don't think I enjoyed him all that much. Uh, I wouldn't say I outright disliked reading this, but I, my strongest emotion while going through it was sort of a, is it over yet? Like yep. I felt the book was done. I felt that the story was, was complete in terms of the main narrative. And this was sort of forcing me to linger where I needn't have lingered. And I also knew that, like you just mentioned, this is a fictionalized version of a writer's diary. This is a fictionalized version of, of moments in King's life that lead up to the point of him writing various uh, pieces of the Dark Tower story and things like that. So there's a part of me that says, yeah, this is all familiar. I've been reading Stephen King books since I was like a teenager, and he always includes stuff like this in his forewords or afterwards. I've read some of his nonfiction, like his on writing book. So all of this is like, it felt like a rehash of stuff I already knew with the added muddiness of it being not real. Hmm. So it kind of felt like a waste of my time. So I was in a hurry to just get to the last page of it, because if there's anything meaningful in here, I didn't want to miss it. But I was also kind of annoyed that I had to deal with it. Sure. I can understand that. And, you know, looking at it now, and I wonder if this would be the case, this almost feels like the interstitials that 
a TV show would do. So I think in Breaking Bad, they would have, uh, they either had like comics or little online videos that they did between seasons to keep the fan interest engaged. Um, mm. I think Lost did something similar where they had, you know, little pieces of information that, while maybe not particularly canon, you know, you could watch the entire series all the way through and miss those pieces. Um, for those who are deep fans, they got a little bit more out of it, right? And yeah. I wonder if, you know, if he could jump forward 15 years to today, if this would be something that would be published on the darktower.com website as a in-between while you're waiting for between book six and book seven for a little bit of added content, that this would be something that would fall nicely into that so that it doesn't have that feel of, hey, is this important? Am I going to miss anything? But on the other hand, it doesn't keep you away from the end of what you thought was the end of the book where we had this cliffhanger. Mm. And it might even have been an interesting narrative um, experiment, if nothing else, to have these, all this content interspersed throughout the volume. Mm. And that might've spoiled a little bit of the surprise of actually meeting King in person and having him face to face with Roland and Eddie at, uh, towards the end of the, the book. But I kind of felt like we knew that was coming. They've been on the path to find Stephen King since the, almost the very beginning of this book. When they met John Cullum, they, they learned that Stephen King lived in the town nearby. And, and in the previous book, in Wolves of the Call, they learned that Stephen King was an author. So it kind of felt like it was just going to that. So if maybe in between each stanza, we got a chunk of this, this writer's diary and we didn't really get an explanation to it it was just there yep and you're just like oh okay you know 1977 this happens and then on with the story and then whatever you know just i think maybe if he broke it into these little bite-sized pieces it would have been less intrusive less overwhelming or overbearing in its its scope and i know it's not that many pages but still it just it felt like it just didn't end and mm. If it had been broken into just single entries, then it could have had that sort of like, like we we could be reminded that it exists in parallel, like in time with the creation of with King's create the the real King and the character of King, both creating the story of the Dark Tower, and I think that might have been maybe a a more balanced approach. Mm. Yep, interesting. So the two big things that we're supposed to take away from the writer's notebook, because obviously it's there for a purpose, mm -hmm. and I think it's at least supposed to advance the narrative somewhat. I think the two big things that we're supposed to take away from it is that one, there seems to be a power, as we've discussed earlier, that continuing to try to stop King from writing the story. So, you know, he mentions in a couple places that, you know, He's still drinking and that seems to be slowing down. And there's times when there's just not a, a, a desire to write these books and he gets sort of off on separate paths and he's not writing it. On the other hand, there are times when, hey, I've got inspiration and now I'm going to write. So that's one. And two, the shock, maybe the twist at the end that King is dead, that Stephen King, the author, dies at the end of this writer's notebook. Yep. Which makes us think if he dies in. 1999 in a van accident that 
has the story been written yet? The ending, because it has not been ended and written here. And so what does that mean in terms of the larger story that we've been told? If we've been told that King is the person who is creating this world and is creating these characters, and if he's only up till 1999 and not all the books are written yet, what does that mean for our Katet? Are, are they totally independent now? Will their story end as well? Or what does that happen? And I'm guessing that that's going to be a major theme in book seven. Yeah, I guess it would have to be. And it, it sort of goes back to the, the time travel conundrum that we talked about last episode, where if King is the one creating this story and the story exists in this larger universe, then in effect, King has created the universe. King has created everything from the tower itself to the rose to all of the multiverse. It's all springs from his imagination. So the fact that his own creation is trying to stop him from creating it seems like it cancels itself out. And so if he is killed or if he were to die of any cause, I suppose, and just no longer exists, the creator no longer exists, but the creation continues. How does that work? Yep. Or can it work? Can the creation still exist beyond the creator? Be interesting to find out how that happens. Yeah, or maybe he won't discuss it at all. And book seven's a bunch of just blank pages because King is dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, King is dead. <laughs> King is dead. Sorry. Every 50 pages, it just says, did you not remember that <laughs> King is dead? He never finished these books. On the other hand, maybe they have free will now and they're no longer bound by Ka or King's imagination. Hmm. Interesting. So that ends our coda. The word slinger's note is very much more in the vein of King, the actual author, not the character mentioning why he's writing this book and his acknowledgments to different people. And he says, one more turn of the path, and then we reach the clearing, and we are off to, to book seven. So that is where this book ends. So as we take a look at the book as a whole, what are our big themes and takeaways from this book? And obviously, the one that you and I have spent the most time talking about here is the metafictional aspect of it and how much it stands out in this book within the series. Like this is the first time that it's really come to the forefront and really slapped the reader in the face with, Hey, look, not only is it metafictional, Stephen King is a character run with it. I, I mean, I think that that's the big theme. What are we supposed to take away from it in your opinion, Jay? Yeah, we've been discussing and dealing and experiencing King's use of metafiction in almost all of these books, but this is the one where he really turns the volume up to 11 on his metafiction. Yep. And I think that from a technical perspective, like from a structural point of view, this is, I think, a pretty great achievement on King's part. As a writer, as somebody who's looking to, to build a story and give it a very specific structure and deciding to base that structure on metafiction, I think he succeeded spectacularly in this book mm. because this is metafiction to the, the highest degree like it, to the point where he pulls himself into the story as a as a character and then makes himself a god of this universe uh, so i think um i think we should just take a moment to applaud his proficiency here as a writer and as someone who can construct something this complex and feel like it works um king King makes the idea of metafiction sing in this book. I see what you did there. Yeah. 
wasn't really going for the pun, <laughs> but but it works. But it works. Um, th- there's an, another thing that um, it deals with the idea that is Stephen King the character immortal because St- Stephen King the character is is godlike or is the the god of all of this universe in a sense, and I kind of feel like. He's not immortal, but he, or he doesn't need to be. So I think like this could be sort of one of the workarounds to your question before. If the creator is dead, how does the story proceed mm. uh, without anybody guiding its creation? But I think this comes from Eddie, the idea that King doesn't need to be immortal. He just needs to write the right story. And the story will remain immortal. Right. And I think this is the crux of the final three books. It's certainly important in book five and it's supremely important here in book six that the metafiction has now morphed beyond metafiction it has become celestial creation Mm. this is king a god creating reality to me that is more than metafiction and if that's what king was going for if that's what he was aiming at as he was building up his use of metafiction as he was layering that on top of itself through these books, I think that that might actually make me feel a little bit better about King inserting himself into this story. Because mm. I have long been down on his choice of doing that. I really never liked it the first time I read this book. Second time through, I'm starting to see through some of his, his decisions and I'm a little bit more accepting. I still kind of wish he hadn't done it. I think he could have explored this metafiction thing in a different way if if that was the important thing for him without making Stephen King a character. But the fact that he did it and he did it this way, I think it works if his final stop on that train is the celestial creation element of it. Mm, yep. Yep. So one of my takeaways from the theme of this book is that this book was not at all what I was expecting. Um, hmm. From the fact that the way the book five ended with Susanna sort of walking off and the characters having to have to go find her, and yet the book being titled Song of Susanna and how much time you and I have talked about how Susanna's gotten short shrift throughout the series. And, you know, we've been half joking since probably book three. Mm -hmm. Hey, well, don't worry. When we get to book six, it'll be all Susanna, all Susanna, all Susanna. and. You could argue that Susanna is not even one of the top five most important characters in this book. That, you know, it might go in no specific order, but Roland, Eddie, Mia, Father Callahan, or Stephen King himself before you get to Susanna as being the most interesting or important character in this book. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. I mean, the fact that Stephen King sort of throws himself right in the middle is the big standout. Like, when you are going to remember this book, that's what you're going to remember. Like, oh, yeah, that's the one Stephen King shows up in. And Eddie and Roland have a big, you know, gunfight in it. And then they go meet Stephen King and wow, wow, wow. And everything else is like, oh, yeah, what else happened there? Oh, yeah, Mia gives birth at the end. and But there's not a lot of Suzanne here. I mean, the parts that are, I think, are significant. And we talked a lot about it in the last episode about how she remembers her mother. Um, and the civil rights piece and how that all brings brings that back and how what an impact it has on Mia. But you could argue, like I said, that Susanna is not really that important of a character. So I was 
sort of shocked by that. And yet the book's called Song of Susanna. So you must think that King wants this to be focused on her. Um, I guess thematically, I don't know how it works other than one of the things that you've just sort of mentioned with this metafiction. And I know one of the other themes you talked about is meeting one's maker and that Mm -hmm. Eddie and Roland sort of had this, wow, we've met Stephen King. And I know at the beginning of the book, even though Callahan has not yet met King, Callahan is very concerned about what does this mean that I'm a character in a book and that this man was able to record my thoughts. And he hasn't come to that answer yet. But the whole plan that Sayre and potentially the man in black and flag and however they're all related, the main plan is to bring Mordred to life because he is going to be the one to kill Roland. And that is really, in a sense, him also meeting his maker in some sense, because, right, Roland is the one who is the father of Mordred through this whole, or Mordred through this whole spirit, sexual, succubus thing. Um, so I, yep. I think maybe those two, Su- Susanna's story is connected in that way to this other theme of metafiction and this God creation and how do you handle meeting the person that who's essentially made you in some way. And then it become this might become a, you know, a, a father son type of thing in book seven, I guess, whether or not that's an important theme or not, we'll have to see how it plays out. But that's the other sort of big theme that I see pulling its way through this book. Yeah, I, I think the idea of meeting one's maker is a really important thing here. And just like Susanna's gotten short shrift throughout the series, I, I kind of feel bad for Callahan that he's not one of the people who meets Stephen King in this book. Because <laughs> right. we see it through his eyes. We experience it through his realization that he is a character in a Stephen King book that starts to make him doubt his own reality. Yep. But the other characters don't feel that. Not directly, not immediately. And it's only upon, you know, like after Roland and Eddie have finished their big gunfight and they're just sort of, you know, moseying on around in Maine and finally meet Stephen King based on an instinct that they come to fully grasp that they themselves, just like Callahan, are stories in a book that was written by this guy who has a you know, moderately expensive house and uh, Jeep Cherokee and a, and a Jeep Cherokee in the driveway and stuff like that. So, like, I feel like it should have been Callahan who met King. In well, he's the way. yeah, because he's the only one who has the actual proof that he's a, a a character in a book, right? Because he has seen the book and has seen his name in the book and has seen his thoughts transcribed on a page, whereas Eddie hasn't been created yet, and Roland. Is still he's in a, a book. He's in a book, but, but it hasn't been published, and he hasn't seen it. They're doing. They're basing it entirely on the fact that Roland ha- or that King has told Roland this, um, right. and he's done it in enough detail that they know it's true. They don't doubt it. But like Callahan's the one who's had to face facts. Like, wow, this is me, and who am I, and how am I real? Right. So that whole mind bending experience that Callahan goes through is transferred to Roland and Eddie via us, the reader. Yeah, you know, like like we understand Callahan's experience, and we're kind of you know freaked out by it too. And then we see Eddie and and Roland talk to Stephen King, and we're like, oh man, that must be really weird. And and I, Roland I, I, and Roland's yeah. not the type who's so introspective to understand what that all means. I mean, he's they've already said that you know books are rare, and he's not much of a reader. He's a man of action. I think for Roland. 
all of this means is okay what does this mean and how do i do what do i need to do to continue to make sure the tower stands um, yeah you don't see the impact on roland i think he's i mean he's obviously had there's some impact to him but we don't but I, we don't get that sense of introspection like we do with callahan i think that roland think uh, thinks or rather roland treats stephen king the character like any other significant powerful entity slash character slash person that he has encountered all along the way i think in some ways you could if, through roland's eyes king is a lot like uh, flag or walter or even uh, i don't know Rhea of the coos or something like that like, right like king is just a magical powerful being that has an important part to play in roland's larger story of reaching the tower it doesn't matter that he's the person who invented him from yeah. <laughs> his own imagination or that he represents the tower or the beams or something or he's the rose or like none of that is important it's like i still need to get to the tower yeah, right <laughs> so if you can make i just this... gotta make sure you keep writing my story yeah exactly exactly uh any other big themes from this book that you think are notable to discuss jay um twins and reflections are certainly mm. uh, part of this we certainly dealt with a lot of twins in wolves of the Kala. Uh, where it was always one of a pair of twins that was taken. But here we see, uh, in some ways, Susanna and Mia are like twins slash reflections of each other. Uh, they occupy the same body. Uh, but other than that, they, they share some twin-like aspects. Um, Stephen King and Roland yeah. are kind of mirror images of one another. They're described as looking quite a lot alike, perhaps the resemblance of a father and son, or maybe a grandfather and grandson, uh, but there's definitely a lot of overlap in their appearance. Yep. I guess they're both long, tall, and ugly, <laughs> which I thought was interesting that, you know, like, Eddie has referred to Roland as long, tall, and ugly since the first day he met him. Right. And we learn here from reading between the lines a bit that King maybe has always imagined that Roland looks a bit like himself. So he's been throwing shade at himself at his own appearance since book two of the series of basically saying like, Roland's kind of hard to look at and he looks like me. So yeah, right. Mm. Self-deprecating <laughs> much. Yep. Yeah. Can you think of any other twin examples in the book or no, I mean, there's a lot of talk between uh, Susanna and Mia and, you know, Susanna has this fear as she like looks at her body that, you know, the legs are white and she wonders, you know, how long before her entire body starts to move to the whiteness of Mia and what that'll mean. And, you know, at the end of the book, when they're when Suzanne and Mia are sort of split and put into these brain contraptions that Sarah and the doctor mm -hmm. have like, yeah, there's a little bit of that as well. Um, it's a much darker reflection and not a mirror image as much as sort of a a you know photo negative image almost of the two of these characters hmm. yeah it's a good way of looking at it um something that kind of stood out for me as well is that the way that king tells his tales especially in the dark tower is that evil must wear a disguise mm. so I, i'm assuming you're talking specifically a lot around that last scene when we are in the dixie pig and all these people there waiting for the birth of this child have these masks on that at one point, Detta pulls away and you see underneath it. Um, right. Yeah. 
but that's maybe the most surface example of evil in a disguise and and those disguises are terrible they're they're very easy to see past um you know that this is a false appearance on those uh those creatures yep. but when we hear callahan's story in wolves of the kala and how he delves more deeply into his his battle against the vampires mm. as he's wandering the the countryside the vampires are in disguise as normal people but certain people like him can actually see through that disguise but they're evil and they they are disguised as normal people flag slash walter is always hiding his true appearance no mm. it seems like we are never exposed to what he really looks like and the list can can go on i'm sure but i think that king seems to portray his most evil characters or the most evil traits in his characters by also making it that they don't look like the good characters right and if they were to show their true form it would be nightmarish it would it would first of all alert everyone around them that they are monsters of some kind and it would also make it hard for them to do their their trickery and their manipulation because they would be completely off-putting so they have to wear this disguise of of uh humanity and yep. appear to be like everybody else around them sort of like in the last book where the robots had to dress up like wolves as well yes they couldn't even be robots no because it would be obvious then that if they're robots that potentially andy was a traitor and also it might be easier to see the way that they could be defeated through their antenna on top of the heads yeah yeah that's a good one um i see in your notes you also have something a theme of the talismanic power referring to the scrimshaw turtle that's used to hypnotize people at the beginning um as well as black 13 i think that that's pretty obvious the power that is had you know to get to mm -hmm. your evil must wear a disguise the interesting about black 13 is it always has to remain hidden before its true power is released so they keep it within the wooden box and then on top of that in a, inside a bowling bag because just out in the open it would be way too powerful for anyone to handle yeah there have been other examples throughout the the story the the key that eddie carves and things like that and even in this book when king sends the magnetic hotel key card yes. to jake through his one time only i can send a note to the future rule um that he gives himself for some <laughs> reason um that's another powerful talisman that helps to move the the story forward but it also helps to counteract some magical problem that they might be facing and very early in the book i think it's susanna who's kind of come to the realization that all of roland's quartet have developed particular magical gifts if you will yep and the one that Eddie has developed is the ability to create powerful talismanic items yes. where he can carve keys and carve wedding rings and things like that, that can, that within themselves hold some sort of power that the raw materials that he started with did not. So that's something that is kind of important to Eddie's character. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if the three of them continue to use their powers in the next book. Mm -hmm. If that's something that, you know, because it's, you know, I think Jake's power to have the touch has been pretty apparent throughout the series. Eddie's talismanic power hasn't been 
as important or used as often, but when it has been of great importance. So pulling, yes. pulling Jake through and Susanna's power, which we're really seeing for the first time, I think, in this book to mm-hmm. imagine objects and, and creating these places that she can then enter and make real in her mind, uh, such as the Dogen that she's created to have a way of, of controlling Mia to some extent. Assuming she survives the birth of the baby, whether or not she'll continue to have this power in book seven. Yeah, that'll be fun to find out. So speaking of fun, Jay, let's do one last fun stuff for this book before we get to our final wrap up. Sure. So I'll start first. There's a couple references in the writer's coda piece of unfinished works. um, And King points out two of the most famous one is the mystery of Edwin Druid, which was the unfinished work by Charles Dickens, which you know many people have tried to to finish since then. And then um, Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, which was supposed to be much much longer than it is. With I think it was eventually going to have over a hundred tales, and it's uh, significantly less than that. And you and I had talked offline about one of the other ones that I'm always reminded of which is Kublai Khan by uh, Coleridge. And it's always stuck in my mind because that's one that has some metafictional qualities to it because there is a author's piece on top of that in which he talks through how the writing came to be and why, in fact, it is unfinished. So obviously, King has on his mind the fact that there are unfinished works by famous authors and I think it is his idea that he does not want to be one of those folks. So he wants to make sure that his epic magnum opus is finished. And the accident that he had was obviously a big influence on making sure that it would get done. And he's hinted at that throughout this book and made clear that he wanted to finish it. I think we talked about it in the last book, too, how there was no issue he was going to make sure this got finished. And he did not want to end up like Charles Dickens or Chaucer or even Samuel Coleridge with unfinished works. Yeah, considering how quickly he wrote the last three books, you know, when once he was finally healthy enough, both physically and mentally, that he could, you know, get back in front of the word processor, he just cranked these out. Yep. I mean, so I do wonder, and I'm sure lots of people wonder, including King himself, if he made the right decision to do that that way, to write all three books in one fell swoop and do them you know, kind of in such a short period of time. Because the alternative, of course, would have been to give himself a couple of years at least in between each one to let his imagination continue to percolate and grow, just like all of the the previous books did. I mean, there were years and years in between some of those books. And, you know, he he chalks that up in his uh <laughs> in his coda about how he's basically you know, stifled from writing Dark Tower stories until the power of of Ka or what have you comes through and then he becomes its its portal, right? It like it just kind of flows out of him, fully formed. And then when it's done, it's done and then he he can't control when the next book comes. Yeah, which is why book four ends where it ends and where, you know, right. why there were so many years in between books four and five and you know, so it's uh, like, okay, nice nice of you to give yourself a, an easy explanation for your long gaps of writing. But I wonder, I wonder if he would have had as good of or perhaps even a better, you know, final 
few books of the series if he had taken his time. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, maybe knowing now that he would have survived and maybe that would have been different. But I think it's pretty clear from this book that that aspect of mortality is high on his mind. Right. And he wants to make sure that this gets finished and he's the one who finishes it. And luckily, now that the Dark Tower series is complete, there are no major works of fantasy or science fiction midway through that an author has to finish. I mean, this was the last important one, right, Jay? Yes, definitely. <laughs> no other that we could think of. Yeah, I can't think of any others. You know, I mentioned last episode about the interview that Neil Gaiman had with Stephen King, and it's on his mind in that too. And in that interview where Stephen King says that his son Joe has a very similar writing style to him and that he's never worried about um, if he has a book that's unfinished he's like ah Joe could pick it up and finish it because he and I have very <laughs> similar writing style and he's got great ideas so you know somebody could finish my books and I wouldn't be too worried so I just thought that that was interesting as well um, but obviously it's still something that he was worried about mm-hmm the other interesting thing in that article is he talks about how, um, and he discusses this in his book, Bag of Bones, because he says that Danielle Steele, uh, a famous romance writer, um, she would write three books every year, but only publish two of them. So she had this backlog of books. And that's why mm. Danielle Steele, after she died, still had all these books that came out. Um, and even Agatha Christie was somebody, she had a couple put away. Uh, and it makes me think like, for all we know, Stephen King could be dead. And, you know, all these books that have been coming out lately are ones that he's written, you know, when he was on a cocaine jag in the 80s at some point. But, you know, <laughs> the fact that he's even thinking about those things yeah, just shows how much mortality is on his mind, especially when it comes to the Dark Tower books um, and some of his other books as well. But uh, it makes me wonder, since he has mentioned it, how, you know, does King, you know, even this year alone, King had a book that just came out in May. He's got another one that's coming out in October. I can't imagine that he's not writing something as we speak. I just wonder how many books he has not only in him left to write as he's alive, but that he has done and finished and ready to go. Um, there's some mystery novelists I write who their series continue, but other authors have picked them up. And I just wonder if we'll still begin Stephen King books for years to come. What, what fun stuff do you have, Jay? Well, um, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but. I found myself much more forgiving of this book the second time through. I know it's not really a fun stuff thing, but I really didn't like this book the first time I read it. <laughs> and I think it was that it just, it felt like by the time I was halfway through it, I came to the conclusion that this was the book in the way of me getting to the conclusion of the story. I had just, you know, read book five, enjoyed it, and then. Book six was expecting even more fun, and it kind of was just sort of like, all right, this is table setting. This is you know an exploration of of uh, vanity and hubris by King by putting himself in the in the book. I, I don't see where this is going, and then it kind of ends on this cliffhanger, and it all takes place over the course of what like twenty four hours within the story. Yeah, so it, it's it just felt like a speed bump or something or. Or like just too many people in the way of the exit that I wanted to get to for book seven and just which is like 
I still think I, I, I held on to some of that impatience when I was reading the coda itself. Like, is, is it done yet? Jeez, how many more pages are there of this <laughs> thing? And so I kind of resented this book. But this time, I'm reading it with a very different approach for a, a different reason. And I also have a, a different perspective just in general of books and reading now than I did when I first read this book. And I can appreciate what King's doing. I enjoyed the story more, and I think it's more meaningful now that I, you know, have come this far along the journey again. So I give it a lot more credit, and I liked it a lot more than I did the first time. Well, that's good. I'll be interested to see where you put it in your rankings later in this episode then. Yes, that will be interesting. (laughs) So one of the things that I wanted to point out is King is, what would you say, Jay, the most popular writer of our lifetime? You know, maybe J.K. Rowling has surpassed him in terms of sales of books, but, you know, in terms of the quantity of novels written and just sort of popularity, I can't think mm-hmm. of anyone who's much higher than Stephen King. Like, there's just a few names that are even in that top tier when it comes to sales. And it's like J.K. Rowling, Stephen King, James Patterson, and Clive Cussler. Yeah, like it's it's few and far between. And yet, even in this writer's notebook, King can manage to mention sales and in particular he talks about the poor sales of Rose Matter, Mm -hmm. which he says was a real tank job, at least in the sales sense. Um, And he talks about that readership of the Tower stories has fallen off a lot lately. The figures are really disappointing compared to that in my other books, but it doesn't matter, at least to me. And if the series ever gets done, sales may go up. So even a, you know, extremely successful writer, and even if this is the fictional version of King, still has that concern about sales and is at least aware of them. And he was a little bit hurt that yeah, no one Rose was Madden buying Rose Matter. That didn't do a little bit better. So I just thought, uh, as somebody who's interested in just sort of like the actual sales and production of books, that, that stood out for me as a fun stuff. Um, the only other fun stuff that I had for this section of the book was uh, that in the coda, King says at one point that, I think it's like in the 1995 entry of his diary, that he's still not sure if he should make Flag and Walter be the same person. Yep. And that has been apparent to us as we've read the <laughs> earlier books. Like, King doesn't know what's going on here yet. He hasn't made these connections. He hasn't finalized these decisions. And even as late as 1995, he still was, like, messing around with that option. Like, should I make them the same person or should they be separate people? And are they even people? I don't know. So I think it's kind of cool that that was one of those little nuggets of this coda that I actually appreciated in terms of there's a little bit of background info here that he has, as far as I can remember, has never exposed in any of his afterwards in any of the Dark Tower books or, or, or otherwise to say like, yeah, this guy Flag is also this other character in the Dark Tower and yeah. they are the same, et cetera, et cetera. Like he hasn't done that. And he certainly hasn't said, I don't know if they are the same. I can't figure that out yet. So to see it here in this more raw perspective, more open, like just kind of ruminating, um, uh, I, I I thought that was fun. So Yeah, it, it's in that same paragraph, too, that he makes the connection and says, it makes perfect sense in a way. I can see now how, to a greater or lesser degree, every story I've ever written is about this story. And, you know, I don't have a problem with that. Writing this story is the one that always feels like coming home. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's as he's making that connection and he's not sure where it is yet, he's already starting to sense. And again, 
this is the fictionalized king in a in a writer's notebook that was written not contemporaneously i'm guessing but after the fact um that he sees this as all of his works are the dark tower works um and he made that much more clear in an earlier book when he said that the dark tower was his jupiter that all of his other books revolve around so um just nice to see that spelled out what do you think that means from king's perspective in terms of the fact that at least anecdotally i don't know if there's any real data on this anywhere it seems that as popular as king is and as widely published as he is his dark tower series is the least read of his works and the least popular of his works the 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 folks who like those books like them the most right. but it feels like that's always the gap in if you talk to any Stephen King fan, like I've read all of his books. Oh yeah. What did you think of the dark tower? Oh, those are the only ones I haven't read. You know, like that I've had that conversation a lot and you had it with me before we started this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you've read more books as a single human being than, than most people I've, I've ever met. So the fact that you had that gap is, is telling. So if King thinks of the dark tower as his Jupiter, if King sees that, all of his stories are kind of part of this story. And if King feels that when he writes the story, it feels like coming home. Yep. To me, that means that this is really precious to King. This is more than just his ambition to create his version of Lord of the Rings. This is something that is really important to him just to be able to say that he's written this, this story, to have created this story, to have lived with these characters. but it's almost always the least popular part of his library or his his body of work. I wonder how King feels about that. Does does that hurt him the way that Rose Matters poor sales hurt him or does he just say, "Yeah, whatever, it's important to me and I know it's it's important and good and, you know, if somebody read The Stand and read Insomnia and read Hearts in Atlantis but they never read The Dark Tower, yeah, they're missing out, but they can still enjoy those books." Those are all good points, and I don't know if I have an answer for you. I think, you know, we could take him at his word, and he and he says, and you know, I don't have a problem with that right here in the text, or, you know, the fact that he has pointed out the sales on a, the previous few pages makes me think that maybe he does have at least some concern about it. You know, I, I do find it interesting that it's in these books that he highlights in the, the author's card where he said other books by Stephen King. And mm-hmm. it's in these books that he starts to bold Dark Tower-related works beyond the Dark Tower, you know? So he points out that Salem's Lot, The Stand, The Talisman, It, Eyes and the Dragon all have related to Dark Tower, and those are in bold as almost to highlight, hey, see, you might not have made the connection, but I'm going to make it more apparent for you. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he says that all of his books are about that, I think that gets to the fact that Stephen King is a character. And as we've talked about, like he is almost a God. And if he feels that not he's a God, but at least he's the creator of all these things. And the dark tower is something that inspires him or pushes him in some way. Um, they are all dark tower related in some way. Yeah. It's a good point. I, I, I don't know the, the correct answer and maybe book seven will enlighten us more. We'll see soon. Yep. So, on to the book reviews and reception. So we've talked about how on the library thing rankings and the Goodreads rankings, a lot of this is user-generated and, and sort of a self-selected group. 
I found fascinating that this book in particular on both library thing and Goodreads has a significant drop compared to books two through five. So uh, in library thing, this has a 3.87 star rating, which is the lowest since the gunslinger at 3.85. The rest were all above four. And then in Goodreads, it has a ranking of 3.98, which is the same as the gunslinger in their rankings. Uh, but significantly less. All are above 4.15 in Goodreads from books two through through five. So any thoughts on that? Does that shock you, surprise you that this is ranked so low in comparison to the other books, Jay? Not really, because I, I kind of don't think it's one of the best of the, the series. I am a bit chagrined that uh, the gut comparing as as it to the to book one as like the example of the nadir of, of <laughs> the series, and uh, I maintain that it is the best book of the series. But you understand in your mind, and when we've had this discussion, that the potential for people who are turned off by book one is because it does seem like it is such a different style of writing of book than the rest of the series, and that it's not even very similar to King's style of writing in his non-Dark Tower books. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and that's what appeals, a lot of what the appeal is for you, is that it's a little bit more heady and a little bit more philosophical, and yet still has a lot of the traits of the series that you like. The, the spaghetti Western, Roland at his sort of peak understanding of who Roland is, like the characters defined and spelled out in that. I guess I yeah. find it, odd and again the rankings don't surprise me that much because i don't think that this book is maybe quite as great but for there to be such a significant drop because i don't think style wise that this book is a whole lot different so i wonder what it is about this book that in the eyes of many readers it's a disappointment is it because it ends on a cliffhanger and it's not really feels complete in some ways is it because a majority of it the cotet are split up is it because the main focus is Susanna. Is it because, you know, any one or number of these things? Is it the time travel? Is it the fact that Stephen King's in it? I don't know the answer to that, but I just I just found it significant that it is such a significant drop. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that the style here is quite similar to Five because it was written, you know. Months apart. <laughs> months apart. Um, so at least it's it's the same authorial voice, but King has purposely experimented with structure in terms of putting this in you know stanzas, stanzas and and making this like a an epic poem uh, to some degree i think that perhaps splitting up the characters in the way that he did probably hurts uh, the narrative and and we've as fans of the story we've become fans of the characters and we want to see them continue we want to see them interact with each other and help each other and fight together and stand and and you know overcome obstacles as a team and the very and they are forced to work separately yep and that is discouraging and it takes away from some of the magic of having them work together or just be together because we've spent all this time forming them into a family if nothing else and now the the family's all <laughs> scattered and they're scattered in in geography and they're scattered in time and yeah that that might kind of sap a reader's enthusiasm. Um, and I think the cliffhanger doesn't really stand out for me because so many of these books end on cliffhangers and some of them ended on cliffhangers and then we had to wait six years 
for the conclusion <laughs> of those cliffhangers. Someone's still bitter. Uh, but book five ends on a cliffhanger, but we get the resolution of that cliffhanger almost immediately, like when the next book is published a few months later. And this book ends in a cliffhanger, and the next book was published just a few months later. So I don't think that's a reason to hate on this book. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I, I kind of feel like we didn't get very far. That is maybe a different way of looking at it. We just sort of treaded water for 600 pages or whatever this book is. And that's kind of a bummer. Well, let's look to our professional critics and reviewers to see what they thought at the time that the book was published. And the first one review comes from The Independent. And they say the Song of Susanna is by far the best of the sequence so far. Wow. And at 440 pages has none of the bagginess that has occasionally dogged the series in the past. So a direct refutation of what we just said. Song of Susanna is the best so far. Let's see if that continues in the rest of our reviews. And and it's nice, tight, 440 page uh, depth. Like, like, yeah, so that actually makes it better. Only 440 pages as if that's tight and, and, uh, and short. And I guess by King standards, it is in the dark tower series. It is, but by any other Mm -hmm. author standard, that might not be so much. So. Yeah, that's less than half of it. Yeah. So we get to book list. We get a similar uh, thing. King's Epical Dark Tower. Epical? Is epical a word? I guess it is if book list prints it. King's Epical Dark Tower hastens to a close and its penultimate volume is one of the speediest. King keeps us on tenterhooks throughout and leaves us there. Before quite departing, he tacks on a clever coda about the gradual creation of the Dark Tower. But in which world? And then... I left this in just because I wanted to point it out in a couple of the reviews. The series concludes with the Dark Tower in September. There's a couple of these reviews where you can see that they are already anticipating the next book. And I think that some of the reviews are taking that into consideration that there is a a sequel coming just around the corner. Mm. And almost saying, don't think of this as its own standalone book. Know that there's more coming. Yeah. But again, uh, a clever coda about the creation of the Dark yeah, Tower. Yeah, it was really clever. <laughs> Publishers Weekly had a star reviewed, and uh, this is an interesting lead. There's something about a crippled, black, schizophrenic, civil rights activist-turned-gunslinger whose body has been hijacked by a white pregnant demon from a parallel world that keeps a seven-volume story bracingly strong as it veers towards its Armageddon-like conclusion. I just wanted. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a a wonderful sentence. Yes. Obviously, schizophrenic's not quite right. Mm -hmm. I also like how this author uh, pointed out the Armageddon-like conclusion. If you'll remember, Stephen King in his writer's notebook points out the movie Armageddon in it as a key. It's just sort of weird. Like, we have 30 pages of writer's coda, and it covers, you know, almost a 30-year span. And Mm -hmm. one of the things he spends time to write about is, hey, me and the kids went out and saw the movie Armageddon in theaters tonight. And You know, as I was thinking about that movie, I thought about the Dark Tower. And it's just sort of like, what an odd connection to make. Um, We'll continue with the Publishers Weekly. Avid readers of the series will either be completely enthralled or extremely irritated when in a gutsy move, the author weaves his own character into this unpredictable saga. But either way, there's no denying the ingenuity with which King paints a candid picture of himself. I think that sort of summarizes what you and I have said, Jay. Yeah. The sixth installment of this magnum opus stops short with the biggest cliffhanger of King's career. 
but readers at the edge of their seats need only wait a short few months to find out how and if King's fictional universe will come to an end. What do you mean if? Yeah, well, like you said, it's just going to be blank pages. King is dead. King is dead. (laughs) So our final review that I wanted to point out is from the New York Times, which uh, the paper of record is not quite as optimistic about this book as some of the others. Stephen King is at his best when he's writing about dark things creeping into humdum reality. But how about when he tries the opposite, planting a bit of reality in a realm of pure fantasy? King's Dark Tower series, his attempt at a Tolkien-like epic, is now in its sixth and penultimate installment, and the story has become dauntingly overstuffed and complex. The hokey illustrations by Daryl Anderson don't help untangle things. Ouch. King's prose, sometimes indulgent, crystallizes whenever he leaves the netherworld. This suggests that his favorite fantasy is not the Byzantine cosmology of another world, but a skewed version of our own. I wonder if that's one of the things that puts people off of this book is that this is the first book where we spend like almost the entire book in the quote unquote real world as mm. opposed to some fantasy version of of that world. Now, yes, in book three, we spend a whole bunch of time with Jake and Jake's in New York and Jake's finding his way through the door. But eh, it's it's like, what, 25 percent of that book? before he finally right. gets pulled through and that's a fairly long book. So compared to this where every single page of this book is in New York and that could be something that is affecting the the feeling that you get as you're reading the story. It's still fantasy, it still has strong elements of science fiction with the time travel and the magic doors and all that, but it's all taking place in not only the real world it's like the primary world it's the mm. world where the the godlike creator of Stephen King lives and where time can't be reversed and things can't be undone so we're told over and over again that this is the real world this is as real as it gets it's the highest fidelity the skies are bluer the clouds are fluffier i don't know right so like maybe that kind of saps the the fun and the magic of the rest of the the fantasy and science fiction aspects that the dark tower contains could be that, that that's a that's an interesting thought um i know jade this points out the that they did not like the illustrator i know you have said that this wasn't one of your favorite illustrators of the series mm-hmm. um i didn't think he was one of the better ones either but i do think that his portrait of stephen king is a pretty cool one. Yeah. Like that's that's sort of the standout of all the ones in this. Some of them I didn't quite get and you know, I didn't spend a lot of time on. Uh but the one of of King in profile I think is pretty great. I will not argue with you on that one. All right, so Jay, I think this is the time when we do our rankings of where this book fits in in our rankings of the the series so far. Where do you have book 6 Song of Susanna? I have got book six dead last in my list. I guess I could say book six was fine. It was fine. Um, it felt like a lot of table setting. And yeah, that's why it, it was fine. It, it, this was not a bad book. This was not unpleasant to read. I did not, you know, have to force myself through this by any means. This was actually, a, you know, this was fine. But that means it is it is my least favorite of the books, so it just falls to the the bottom of the list. 
one is still my favorite of the books, then two, then four and a half, then five, then three, then four, then six. And I, I mean, they're all kind of vying for second and third position, but I, since I have to organize them somehow, that's how they're, they're falling down. Yeah. And I just wanted to expand a little bit on my ranking for book one to kind of respond to something you said earlier about it. I think that in addition to all those positive traits about book one that I like, that it is a little bit headier and it does feature Roland at his prime and it's very much more heavily the the Western theme. I think there's also an element of nostalgia. Like when, mm. when King talks about in his coda how when he writes these stories, it feels like coming home. There was something about my discovery of the Dark Tower story that was so that it really hit I guess it struck a chord with me and that was the first book that I read but it was a little bit of a puzzler for me because it did feel out of context from King's other works that I that I knew at the time and when I read that book only 2 and 3 existed but right. 2 and 3 already did exist so I was able to immediately read two and immediately read three. And because I had gotten to that point and now kind of understood Roland a bit better and, and was able to make more sense of the first book, I went back and I reread all three books again, like right on top of each other. And, and over the years, I read one, two, and three while I was waiting for book four to come out. I read them ultimately like three or four times. I, I lost count. So by the time we read book one again for the podcast, it was like coming home. Mm. There was so much familiarity and nostalgia for book one and I, how much I really, really enjoyed that book. And it was also further informed by my deeper knowledge of books two and three and the larger series that just book one just seems like it's maybe kind of sly in its importance and maybe kind of subtle in how good it is. Um, and I think if you only read it one time and you just proceed through the series and you never come back to it, it does feel like a weaker entry. But if you read it over and over again, like I have, I think it's esteem grows. Mm. And, and that's where I come from. That's why I keep fighting for its, <laughs> its ranking at, at the top of the list because yeah, it is different. And yeah, it is a little bit of a challenge to get through if you're not a fan of that style of, of book or that style of story. But I think that if you read all seven books and then go back and read book one, two, and three again, like I've done, I think that your ranking for one might change. So it's interesting you say that. My rankings still have number one at the last position. I put nice. number... I put number six ahead of both it and book three, um, but but after the rest. So I have it one, two, three, four, five. I have it in the fifth slot of the hmm. seven books we've read so far. I will say this. So book one is the only one that to my recollection that I've read at least twice. Um, I believe I read book two before we sort of tackled this book series and I had not read anything else. Um, and I think I might have read book two, one, maybe once or twice before we started the podcast. I mm -hmm. will say, of all the books, I do think that book one is the one, to your point of re remembering it in a nostalgic way, I can remember what each of those specific chapters are about 
like I could tell you these are what the five chapters are. Here's what they're about. And here's an iconic scene from that because mm-hmm. those things stand out. Um, Roland and Jake under the mountains fighting the, the slow mutants. Um, Roland and Tull. Yeah. Um, Roland and the man in black. Like these are all things that. Even Roland talking to Brown. Yeah, exactly. Like we've referenced that many times. Like I can remember the details of that book more than some of the other ones. Like I think, I think one of the reasons book three so far down on my list right now is because. I know things happen in that, but they're sort of all a blur. Like I know it's Blaine at the end and stuff in Lud, but they don't stand out with sort of this shimmering intensity that you're talking about. And I do see mm-hmm. that in book one. I just don't think from a writing style and sort of overall, it just didn't have that impact. Maybe so we'll see. Maybe, maybe my books will change. And maybe after I finish the series, I'll go back and read book one and see if, I have a different opinion of it now that the series is over and see where it's going. I don't know. It seems like you just made an argument to raise book one a little higher in your list right now. All right. I'll put it, I'll put it, I'll put it second to last. I'll put three last. Yes. (laughs) Moving on up. So Jay, we're at the point where we are now onward to a book that is also the name of the series. Book seven is called The Dark Tower. And I just realized that we are going to have to start every episode if we continue our form by saying, in this episode, we'll cover the Dark Tower, the Dark Tower. We might have to mix that up a little bit, but um, we're there. I, I'm, I'm very excited to start book seven. Yeah, I'm super excited. I, I can't wait to get this book going and find my way through it with you. There is the possibility that I will start reading book seven tonight, right after we're done with this podcast. Hmm. nobody's saying you shouldn't all right well that's going to be all for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came thanks jay thank you links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes you can email us at two guys dark tower at gmail.com and our twitter handle is at two guys dark tower you can also find us on our facebook page at facebook.com slash two guys dark tower or join us on our facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash two guys dark tower If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we start Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 1, Chapters 1 through 3. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Hot damn.